with children, we find a completely new understanding of ourselves and learning with them. So I had to teach myself one step ahead of them and just sit and practice. And eventually we were learning together. I think it is paramount to them. I think religion does give strength and the anchor in a very difficult world. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we have two interviews which delve into teaching children and the concept of what an identity means. So I'm in studio with In Good Faith senior producer, Heather Bigley. Hello. Student producer, Emma Engebretson. Hi. Our first guest today is Harun Mogul, an author, a teacher, and occasionally, as he says, Friday preacher at the mosque. And I, I really like his adventure because kind of late in life, later than you'd expect, he discovers his own religious identity and kind of dives into it in a, a, a really serious way for the first time. Yeah, and he's doing the work of what we might call an apologist here. He's sort of saying, yes, there are, have been issues with Islam, and yes, we understand there are things we need to work on, but we are a religion that is vibrant and is important here in 21st century America. And I think that's important work to do. I love that he really seems to care about what he's talking about. Like, you can tell that obviously there have been experiences for him that have helped him just recognize how important his faith is and how important it is to pass it on to future generations. And I'd suggest for listeners, because this is one thing that really struck me, is to just be aware of what an identity is and how many we all have and which ones we take on and which one we hold up on a placard and which one we may sort of tuck in our jacket and hope right. nobody notices. <laughs> so he uses the title of his latest book. It's called Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision of a Muslim Future. And he starts out explaining a word that I thought I knew what it meant, which is caliph and caliphate. Probably most of your wonderful listeners have heard the term caliph in reference to either medieval caliphates, which were Muslim dynasties, which had a particular claim on politically representing the Muslim world, or more unfortunately, the iteration that was ISIS, the movement that for a brief and brutal time occupied a significant chunk of Iraq and Syria. They resurrected the title uh, after it had been dormant for almost 100 years. But the original term caliph emerges in the Quran in the second chapter as a word to refer to Adam, Eve, and by association, all human beings who were created by God to be his caliphs. The word means something like steward or custodian or representative on earth. And I take that story as the argument that the original and primary meaning of caliphate refers to every human being's obligation to reflect the divine in the world and use it as a platform for building a case for agency, that every Muslim has a moral responsibility, every Muslim has moral accountability, and that we should build institutions and communities and families and lives that reflect our individual agency, our individual accountability, and try to move away from some of the big picture thinking that might have been good in intention has usually resulted in negative or counterproductive outcomes. Boy, I love that emphasis on personal responsibility for making a difference in the world and being an agent of God. Absolutely. It's something that's missing, I think, in a lot of Muslim conversations. What do you see in Islam that has brought it to the point where there are nearly two billion adherents? I would like to think it's because Islam has always had a universal orientation and ambition that's tried to reach every corner of the world and did bring together some remarkably diverse and different people Sometimes without realizing it, Islam emerges quite deliberately, from my view, among a people who are on the margins of the great empires of the day. And so Islam is a religion that is sent down to people who live very mobile lives. They are nomads. They move from place to place. They don't have a lot of possessions. They don't have a lot in the way of material civilization in the way that the Romans and Persians did. And that becomes the foundation for a global faith. And I think that's for two reasons. One, because Islam is very portable. 
you don't really need a lot to be Muslim in terms of materiality. Our spaces of worship are very simple. We just sit on the floor. Your primary connection to God is prayer. All you really need for that is some water, if you have it, to clean yourself and to know the direction of Mecca, if you can find it, and a clean place to pray. Some people have prayer rugs, so on and so forth, but all of those things are secondary. They beautify the faith. They're not necessary to the faith. And I think it's that portability that enables intimacy. It's very simple. It's very Spartan. It's very easy. And it's very intense for its immediacy. And so five times a day watching the movement of the sun, you drop everything and drop to the floor and honor God and humble yourself. For one month out of the year, you abstain from food and drink and intimacy during the daylight hours in order to get closer to the divine. Once a year, if you have the health and wealth, you go to Mecca for pilgrimage and you stand side by side with literally millions of people for the men wearing the exact same garment with not even a stitch on it in order to emphasize this common brotherhood, this common sense of identity. And you don't know if the person next to you is living on $5 a day or living on $500 million because you're all wearing the same thing. You may not speak the same language. You may never see that person again, probably never will. You'll probably collide into them because there's all these people trying to get to the same place. And that's it. And then I think it's because the divine in, in all of our traditions is not physical in the sense that we understand the physical. And so we approach the divine through the ways that he taught us. That connection is fundamental and foundational to, to Islam. And I would argue it's appeal. For example, living here in the United States, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. There is a huge Muslim community here. It grew a lot during COVID when I think a lot of folks left places like California and New York and probably continue to leave places like that and head out to places they find more amenable, affordable, what have you. And you really find people from all over the world, people who might have never had the chance to experience Muslims from other parts of the world suddenly find themselves in, of all places, the Midwest or the United States, side to side in prayer with perhaps someone from a different background, different sect, different profession, different life story. And that creates a beautiful tapestry, but also a very confusing and convoluted tapestry because suddenly all these very different types of people have to find a way to work together. But I think in microcosm, it is a faith that has always wanted to uh, stitch people together because, again, all people are caliphs. All people were created for the same basic purpose, which is to steward God's creation, including the earth. Your book really does a lot to dispel this misconception that Islam is based on coldness or distance or hardness, strictness. But you talk about the love that comes through as a core value. Why has that sometimes gotten lost in the Western view? There's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons has to do with how Muslims themselves have been taught to understand the faith. Unfortunately, in the last century, especially with the downfall of some of the more traditional forms of Islam, we've been looking for new ways to be authentically Muslim and new institutions to express that Islam, and a lot got lost along the way. One of the things that got lost, as you said, was that intimacy, that closeness, that love for the divine, for one another, and that respect and consideration for ourselves. This is a temptation every religion that focuses on ritual is susceptible to, not right. just Islam. Because when you focus on the outward, it is easy to forget about the inward, just as when you focus on the inward, it is easy to forget about the outward. And so we've been out of balance, we've been out of whack, and I'm hoping that we can pull ourselves back towards a little bit of an equilibrium where we understand that outward observance is important, it's necessary, it's vital, but only if it achieves certain inward ends. If I could ask you personally, how has Islam helped you walk that path and make a connection with God, with the divine? There's a beautiful story in the Islamic tradition, which is shared in Christian traditions, in which Abraham confronts the idols in the temple. And this is an Abraham who is keen on monotheism, but perhaps a little bit too keen. And so in the Islamic <laughs> version of the story, Abraham goes on this journey towards God. And he's so deeply faithful and so remarkably spiritually intuitive that he looks around and says, what created all of this? And he sees the idols, his people, including his own family worship, and finds that insufficient. He looks at the sun, the moon, and the stars and wonders if these are the divine and then concludes that they are not. And as he reaches for the divine, the divine reaches out to him, which is a principle fundamental to Islam. And I think that something of that journey happens to a lot of Muslims as well in the modern day. We may not worship idols in a physical sense, but there are idols around us. And for me personally, there were two idols that I had to get over. The first was this concept called identity. It is very tempting for people of color, I think, to focus on certain ways in which we are treated but then to not transcend, that becomes really dangerous. And transcend doesn't mean exclude. It means to incorporate, but to build on and beyond. 
And so for me, initially, Muslimness felt as an identity, as a marker, deeply enriching. And then community became an identity as well, and then an idol as well, in that if I do Muslim things with Muslim people, then my faith is complete. And I refer to it as the God-shaped hole. I was actually asked this brilliant question by someone at a book talk in Chicago, and he said, what keeps you up at night? And if I was <laughs> honest, I said, it's the God-shaped hole, the sense that we are created to need many things, love and community and family and purpose and respect, and we enjoy living and being in the world, but we also need God. And when we don't have that, then there is something so fundamental that is missing from our lives that we will never be content. And if you know that you're supposed to have it, it can be even harder because then you become focused on that thing that is absent. And so for me, the journey has really been one towards incorporating a relationship with the divine into my daily practice. That took a long time. It was very hard. It was not easy by any means. And by no means am I perfect at it. But it has opened the door to a kind of contentment and contented that I would not have otherwise imagined possible. You write very movingly in the first chapter or so about having everything, a good job, a nice marriage, a good apartment, all of these things, but losing almost all of that and hitting rock bottom with health problems and having to give up all of these things. Was that part of your journey to God, do you think? Had you asked me that question while I was going through it, I probably would have reacted <laughs> with a little bit of frustration. Nobody likes to be at rock bottom, but perhaps you need to hit bottom in order to realize what actually matters. Mm. And I can't say how I would respond were that to happen again. I don't know how strong my faith actually is. Unfortunately, we don't know until we're tested. I pray that none of us are so tested. But I will say that going through that experience taught me a lot and helped me recover and build from a foundation that I lacked and knew I lacked because I had that conceptual grammar. I had that language. I knew that a relationship with God was vital to my coherence as a person, my stability as a person, my strength as a person, and I knew it was missing. And so I felt every night that absence. And I think that drove me uh, to a dark place because when you don't have what you need and you look for it elsewhere, you're ultimately just chasing shadows and you wear yourself out in the process. And I think that's what I did. So do you find direction for your life when you're looking for direction from the Quran? I'm assuming that maybe is a given, but also do you sense personal direction from God to you? I don't believe that God necessarily gives people personal direction in specifics. I think that a life of faith orients us towards certain practices and values, and those practices and values build character. And that character opens and closes certain doors. So there was a great line in Miss Marvel, because I like to reference every kind of <laughs> reference possible, in which uh, Kamala Khan, the Miss Marvel of the title, asks the imam of her mosque if she's a good person. And he responds, good is not what we are, good is what we do. I think that's such a beautiful answer because it's the cultivation and accumulation of these things that creates a kind of person. The kind of person who would never think about doing one thing and would always think about doing another thing. And then the divine through that discipline opens certain doors and possibilities without necessarily shoving you through them. Because I think there always has to be a room for agency. What do we do with this? What do we do with this moment? What do we do with this opportunity? What do we do with this talent? What do we do with these resources? And certainly prayer helps us understand, but ultimately that's our understanding that we have to rely on. That's why there's accountability. You talk about being 40 years old before coming really in a committed way to Islam, and that was partly through a teacher. And I'm wondering what difference a teacher made for you. A teacher is valuable, but I would argue in terms of what I've seen in the excesses of certain movements in Islam, teachers are valuable. That we should never have only one source of information. We should never have only one perspective. We should always have people in our lives who can speak truth to us with love and with compassion, but from different points of view. So I told a room full of young men who are asking questions about relationships recently, I said, you might not want to listen to your parents. It might be hard to imagine that your parents have anything of wisdom to offer, but you should at least hear it and then maybe share it with a friend or someone else you trust who knows you and who cares about you and ask them honestly, is the decision I'm making a good one for me? Does this fit in with the kind of person you think I am and think I should be? And a good friend will will speak to you honestly and compassionately. And that can be a relative, that can be a colleague, that can be someone at a church or a mosque or what have you. And so for me, a teacher is someone who sees all of you and who is with you in person, who can be there for the ride. You have this interesting definition of the word kafir, someone who experiences the love and knowledge of God and then buries that. 
What would make someone who experiences that not share it or bury that? The term gaffer is frequently used by extremist groups in the Muslim world to dismiss anyone who is not sufficiently Muslim or correctly Muslim. It's very important to underscore that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, knew who such people were, not because he had any special ability, but because God gave him that knowledge. But now that we are in the absence of his presence, nobody knows for sure. So fundamentally, I think the term should be retired because it's impossible to know. It's purely theoretical. Only the divine knows what is in anyone's heart. But what I think is really interesting is that the Quran spends a lot of time on two categories of people. One is a gafir. A gafir is someone who knows God is real, but denies that for selfish motivations, out of fear, out of cowardice, out of envy, out of insecurity. And then there is what's called the munafiq or hypocrite who pretends to be Muslim for some kind of material advantage, but not actually Muslim. So in both instances, the Quran is condemning people whose inward and outward do not match in, in different ways. The archetypical kafir in the Islamic tradition is actually Satan, who knows God in a way that none of us probably ever could, in the sense that when God confronts Satan for tempting Adam to eat from the tree in the Muslim version of the story of the fall, Satan is speaking to God face to face, for lack of a better term, in a way that none of us in this moment are ever going to be able to do in this life, certainly. And yet he's denying God. And that's a level of obstinacy and arrogance that is terrifying. It's not, I've seen a lot of bad done in the name of religion, so could there really be a God? Or my house of worship is very corrupt. People have doubts about faith, and many of those doubts I can understand where they come from. But for someone to look at God and then say no is a, another level. That's why Satan is Satan in the Islamic tradition, because he chooses out of pride to reject the divine. He chooses out of arrogance, out of rage, out of fury to reject the divine, even though he knows. And I always find it really interesting and, and telling and important to remember that in the Islamic tradition, the worst person is the person who was a Muslim. Satan was a believer. But when he was demoted by the divine in favor of Adam and Eve, he lashes out. So the question then is, for all the faith, for all the practice, for all the good works, what was it worth if when you found out that you weren't going to be the one who was going to be the caliph on earth, as it is in the Islamic tradition, that you lash out? Then what's the point? And it's a warning that we can do lots of good in a formal outward sense, and yet it never touches our heart. If anything, it actually makes our heart harder and worse. And so how do we prevent that from happening? How do we introduce humility in our lives? And having consistency between what we know slash believe slash do sounds very important. So you seem to have a sense of personal mission for passing on some of your experiences, some of the things that you've learned in your work to this younger generation. Tell me about what that is that you do and what you're hoping to accomplish. It started very simply. We've got three kids in the house who are two teenage girls and a boy who's 11. And... They were going to Sunday school at the mosque. And when COVID happened, that went to Zoom. And it, it's not conducive to learning in that sense. And so we started doing very informally just some classes at home. And then very quickly realized you probably shouldn't have three kids in the same class. That's kind of weird. Different age levels, different needs, different genders, different perspectives. And basically, it just took on a life of its own. And so for the girls who were very close in age, we brought along some of their friends it was a nice chance for us and their parents to get together, for us to have a little bit of a community in addition to the mosque and going to the mosque and things like that. And it just turned into a class. And then we started one for our son, who's now 11. And then it expanded to include some of his friends and some of the parents of some of the kids in those classes asked if I could do one for the high school boys, turned into that course. There's really three frames that we want to study the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. We want to ask with, with rigor and with daring and with courage, what does it mean to live that now in America in the 21st century? And third, what are the things that make that responsibility harder in the world we live in? And that includes confronting issues around us in the country at large. That includes confronting issues in ourselves. That includes heritage, background, family, community the simple difference that now is 21st century and then was not. And it's been really fun. It's been a huge learning experience. It's something I hope I write about at some point. I think what's most meaningful is that we keep adding people, although that makes it a lot harder for me, but I feel like it's really important work. And it's a small way of giving back. I think that if you have any kind of talent or ability, then you have a responsibility to give it back. But more than that, the way human nature is, when we do give back, it ends up giving us, I think, a sense of purpose and confidence and meaningfulness that is otherwise hard to find. So you've talked about this curriculum, training future leaders. How do the concepts of love and faith and then other virtues that you've mentioned, how are they part of that curriculum? 
So what I try to do is translate love into a meaningful experience. So part of that is love for God. So we do spiritual exercises that try to bring us a deeper sense of the awareness of God's presence in everything. And not in the literal sense, we don't literally believe God is everything. But there's a verse in the Quran, he's with you wherever you go. He's available whenever you need him, whenever you call on him. So call on him. And so we practice that to create this sense that no matter what you're doing or where you are, that relationship is there. And actually, God's always looking at us. The question is, are we looking back? And then in terms of work with the community, I try to create projects where they get to give back, do something for others, whether that's school or charity or what have you. And then a sense of love as a community. So for them to come together as a community, five, 10 people, that's a kind of community, a sense of responsibility for each other, to look out for each other, to do things together. And faith, I think for all people who want to pass on religion, one question I believe we have to ask teachers, educators, parents, what have you, is if your kids don't know why they're doing something, they're probably not going to keep doing it. And so do they know why? And do they understand why the act has a purpose and has a value and brings about something of value? Or is it simply do this and that's that? Certainly in, in our day and age, when it's very hard to inher inherit faith, as we've seen, then it takes a little bit more work and we've got to put the work in. Otherwise, it's not entirely our fault, but some of it's probably our fault. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. There are stereotypes of Islam denigrating or putting down women. And yet my understanding is those tend to be cultural and from specific societies or countries and not what is laid out in the Quran. Can you address that? We actually, we had a class on this a few weeks back and talked about this. And one thing I tried to get them to understand is that Islam didn't spread with a kind of point-and-click exercise. Poof, you're Muslim, and then suddenly you're 100% Muslim. Islam spread very much like languages spread, especially in the pre-modern age when these processes were slow. It was acculturation. It moved in bits and pieces. It moved unevenly. And people embraced that transformation with passion, but that didn't necessarily mean that the transformation was complete or total or entirely correct. And so they began to label whatever it is they did as Islam. And because they didn't have that many external challenges or needs to confront those practices, then they just continued for generations believing that. I had a friend who recently met a Muslim who owned a gas station, and he himself is a convert to Islam. And when he said salam, the Muslim greeting, just meaning peace to this gas station owner, the man became very confused and said, but you're white. And he said, yeah, I converted to Islam. And without hesitation, the man said, you can't convert to Islam. And my friend was very confused, like, well, then how did it start? <laughs> <laughs> how did it move beyond just Muhammad? Yeah, at some point, someone <laughs> had to convert. But the man just didn't know. And I mean, that's an extreme example, but certainly the misogyny and the exclusion of women is something that was practiced in some Muslim cultures, inherited it in a lot of Muslim cultures, and then retroactively labeled Islamic. And what I want to do in teaching, and I tell this especially to the girls, the young women in our class, that they need to know their faith because they're going to go out into the world. And it's up to them ultimately to choose if they want to practice it or not. I'm not going to be there. No one's going to be there. That's their decision. That's their responsibility. And they're also going to possibly encounter people who are going to tell them things in the name of faith that may be dangerous or harmful or foolish. And if they don't have the confidence to push back, then possibly they will accept those arguments or they will reject the whole thing. And I don't want them to do either. And so I think giving them a chance to learn and to feel a sense of empowered connection with the tradition is vital. Can you tell me something that you really love about your faith? One of your favorite things about it? Nighttime. In the Islamic tradition, the latest hours of the night, or I suppose the earliest hours of the morning, when everyone is asleep, uh, I feel like this is the start of a nursery rhyme or something like that, <laughs> but when everyone is asleep and you are alone with the divine, and it is a time for prayer, it is a time for reflection, it is a time for calm, and in the craziness of life from picking up from practices or dropping off at school to someone's got a sleepover at someone's house. We just get consumed, never mind the bills and the jobs and all of those things. And it is easy to get caught up in those things. And those are not bad things. It's reality. And that's the world we live in. But you need that connection. And I think anyone who lives a life of faith, and whether you are progressive, conservative, traditional, modern, and those are loaded terms, I know. But when you have that connection to faith, I think central to it and Probably the most beautiful thing are those moments, however fleeting, when you feel connected, not just to the world, but the thing that made the world, not to existence, but the one through whom existence is possible. 
And that feeling, even for a few seconds, really makes everything else possible. That was Haroon Mogul. His latest book is Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision of a Muslim Future. And he teaches in his current projects focusing on building young Muslim leaders in theology, stories, movies, philosophies, all of this that applies to the upcoming generation. I really liked when he talked about the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage that hopefully you make at least once in your lifetime, if you're able, to Mecca. And he talks about being dressed in a white cloth without a single stitch and that as you walk around the Kaaba, that's the center there in Mecca, that you don't know if the guy next to you is dirt poor or a billionaire. Right. And that was kind of transcending earthly identities, I thought, like identifying with material things, which also tied in with this whole idea, he says, sometimes you get an identity and it's really emphasized in your life for a while. Like you're a father, suddenly you're a grandfather, suddenly you're a school teacher, and that becomes kind of almost everything. But he talks about you absorb that into who you are and then transcend it. Mm. Just the whole concept of your identity and how it can maybe become an idol if it's not pointing you to God. I think, like Steve said, we have lots of just roles and sort of positions that we take on and they become like a key part of who we are. But if we can learn to bring those to God as well, then God can kind of be in all of it. You know, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. I like that. I like this story of the Kaaba as well because we have in our own tradition a similar experience where we're all dressed in white in a very sacred space and we don't know whether the people behind us or next to us or with us where they're from, but the importance of being there together, right, Mm. of witnessing together, that to me is so important. And it's really enlightening to be reminded that All religions have some version of this, where your identity before God is the most important identity. Harun Mogul, I love his passion, and I'll be excited to see what he does as the years go by. Here's another kind of identity. This is like a plot from a movie. So (laughs) so tell tell us, uh, because you did this interview, Heather, with Yelena Limbersky, how her identity figures into this interview. Yeah, so we— Contacted Elena Limbersky because she has this fantastic memoir called Like a Drop of Ink in a Downpour from Cherry Orchard Press. And it's got plot point after plot point after plot point. Uh, she's born in Leningrad. She's raised by her mother and her grandmother. Her grandfather's this famous painter. Um, they are Jewish and they're allowed to immigrate to Israel. And then After her grandmother immigrates, her mother's imprisoned on false charges. And I mean, it just goes on and on. And at the end of this memoir, Elena, as the narrator says, I realized I was Jewish and I wanted to, once I got out of the Soviet Union, I wanted to raise my children as as Jews. And I was like, we've got to talk to her about that, right? Because the book actually doesn't go into what she does and how does she accomplish that. And so that's why we're talking to Elena. And she spoke very passionately about her grandfather's painting. And we have to say, we don't have a lot about the painting in the interview, um, but you can go to limberski.org. That's L-E-M-B-E-R-S-K-Y.org. And you can see all of his paintings nice. because they got rescued from the Soviet Union. And then um, Elena's made it her life's work to put those paintings out into the public. Oh, just listening to her voice, you could hear that she has such a personality and a presence and like a warmth to her. So I'm excited. This is an interview full of images, and I'm not making a pun on just the paintings. <laughs> I'm talking about the story she's going to share about her grandmother and her mother these are just vivid, vivid images that stick in my mind. When you grow up in Leningrad in the 1960s, 70s, in the new part of the city, you can spend your whole childhood never seeing a church or a synagogue. But I always knew that we were Jews because the word Jew was always present in the in our family. And I remember asking my grandmother what, what it meant. And she told me about the ancient land in Mesopotamia, 
And so my first imagining of Judaism was my grandmother. And the way she looked was slightly different from people in the streets. And she was able to tie Judaism and our roots to this very ancient lineage and heritage for me. So there was a mystery and mysticism. There was always a sense of curiosity for me what it was. So I remember when I was seven or eight years old, my mother went to the underground lessons of Hebrew. There was no Hebrew school in, in the Soviet Union. And she took a big risk because there were no official schools. There were no lessons. You couldn't learn officially. And the books were smuggled by American Jews so we could learn. I remember her coming from one of those lessons and bringing a page of Hebrew letters. And she gave it to me and said, study this, this is a sacred text. From then on, that was my life mission. So I remember the first grade, my school teacher telling our class, children, God does not exist. God does not exist. And we know this for a fact because our Soviet astronauts flew into space. People used to believe that God sits on a throne up in the clouds, but our Soviet astronauts saw nothing. When I was about 12 years old, I was alone because my mother was in prison. She was imprisoned for a crime. She did not commit, she was innocent. I was left alone. I had a private music teacher who surprisingly did not cast me away. And he continued to teach me even though I was a daughter of a convict. And one of the pieces I was learning is Bach, Sebastian Bach. During one of these lessons, he went to the back room and brought back his Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a very thick book. And he handed it to me and he said, I want you to borrow it. I want you to read this. Please read this book because I want you to better understand the music of Hans Sebastian Bach. And so during the time when my counterparts were studying, I was reading the Old Testament and it gave me a lot of solace. In America, when we hear that the Soviets suppressed religious practice and freedom of expression like art, we assume that means all such things disappeared. But that's not really true. The fact that the Soviets were suppressing religious practice officially had created the very powerful counter-movement in which religion was something to aspire to. It had value for people. Religion was a way to resist the Soviets. I think the Soviet people were skeptics. Some people believed the propaganda or didn't think about it, but I think in my circles, in, my, in the circles of my mother, my parents, there was strong skepticism and understanding that what is told in the newspapers is a lie and the truth is somewhere else. And I think that created the soil in which faith was a saving grace. Faith and the arts was a way to protest. And in Russian tradition, painting has a sacred meaning, and it comes from the Russian Christian Orthodox tradition of religious icons. So the visual image was very important. Vast swath of the society was illiterate before the revolution. So the icons was both an educator and also this connection to God. And when the Soviets destroyed religion and they took the beautiful icons, masterpieces, and threw them in the warehouses or used them as a bags for the basketball hoops, I think the painting rose, especially nonconformist painting, the avant-garde painting, is something that continued the spiritual tradition. You've mentioned how your grandfather, Felix Lembersky, was an influential artist politically in the USSR. What were the costs associated with his artistic expression? I think that the cost of being a nonconformist artist was very high. Anything in the Soviet Union, any step and decision that deviates from a fairly strict, clear ideological line always has costs. The risks and the costs are different things. The risks were tremendously high. The costs were quantifiable. As an official artist uh, with someone as Felix Lembersky's education, he had entrance to the most elite part of the society. As an artist, he had access to commissions, to prestige, access to the greatest wealth that the Soviet Union had to offer. Artists were very important as the tools, as co-creators of propaganda. And he had the skill, the mastery to create this work. If he continued, he would have been elite of the society and quite wealthy. He rejected all of that and chose to paint what he felt was his truth, the nonconformist art, the religious symbols, spiritual symbols. And so that is quantifiable cost. Do you think your grandfather's identity as a Jew is part of what helped him 
have this integrity to step away from the Soviet political machine and say no. He had made a choice, I think, to never abandon spiritual and religious connection. I think it was his conscious choice. I think that when the Soviets enforced atheism, I believe that art, music, visual art, became a vessel through which people could express some of the sentiment. My grandmother made a different choice. For her, I think our safety, the safety of her daughter and her granddaughter, was above everything else. And for 50 years, she couldn't practice Judaism. Once a year, she would go to a synagogue and bring matzah. And that is all she could allow herself. She could have Jewish friends. She could not teach me Judaism. Tell us about immigrating to America and seeing your grandmother after all those years. I was a college student already. I haven't seen my grandmother for seven years. So there was this gap. I remembered my grandmother in her 60s, and I came to a very different person. So we arrived in Michigan from Russia after nine years as refuseniks. Two days later, we came on Thursday. On Saturday, she told us that we are going to her synagogue. And everything about that synagogue was strange in that moment. I was stunned. I was shocked when I saw my grandmother holding Sidur. And I didn't know what Sidur is. It's a Jewish prayer book. I didn't know Hebrew. I just saw a page of Hebrew when I was younger. And I saw my grandmother reading the prayers and chanting by memory. So she carried this memory for 50 years. She carried that knowledge. And when she could practice, she never missed a Shabbat. You mentioned that your grandmother didn't speak of the Holocaust either. And that seemed to be out of a sense of protection. Could you talk a little bit about that? She, yeah, so her reasons, she never talked to my mother and I about Holocaust. And in fact, I began to study and learn about this only after she was gone, when I was, when I finished college and when I was in my 20s. Even when she was in an arbor and was free to talk about about what had happened, she chose to keep it from us. And I think that her reasons were very different from the Soviets. Stalin and the Soviets did not want to have empathy towards the Jews because they took a very different policy towards Israel that was just founded. And anti-Semitic campaigns in the 1940s and 50s were just vicious. My grandmother did not want us to live with the burden of that tragedy. I think also victims often don't want to talk about their victimhood. And I think it was a lot easier for my grandmother to talk about her surviving the siege, the heroism, the courage that she had when she was standing on the roofs of the academy building where she was stationed with a bucket of sand waiting for the bomb to land on the roof so she could put out the fire. That is easier to talk about than to talk about the fact that her people, our people, were targeted for extermination for no fault of our own. And she wanted us to have the cloudless sky. What has been your own approach when you were raising your children about this topic? I don't remember talking to my children about Holocaust. But when my older one was entering middle school, I sent them to day school to Jewish day school for three years. Both of my kids were in Jewish day school. And there they had a full exposure, graphic details of Holocaust. And I found from my experience that the people, the Soviet Jews, the Russian Jews, who had families experience, who had lost people, we are very reluctant to talk about Holocaust. And American Jews has more, I guess, more resilience in talking about this. But the story, I think the conversation, the story of Holocaust is not written, is not complete yet, because Holocaust did not end in 1945. The survivors returned and carried those memories all their lives, and their children and grandchildren, our children, we all live with that experience, whether we know it, whether we have seen it or not. There is a research in transgenerational trauma. Rachel Yehuda had published a series of studies on children of Holocaust survivors, and they find the biological markers that make those children and the grandchildren more predisposed to post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety problems. So I think that 
tremendous trauma did not end with the experience of Auschwitz or Babi Yar. It continues in multiple generations. And those stories of living with the parents, Holocaust survivors, are now coming out in multiple books. And in some way, my our my mother and my memoir is a part of that story. And in the Soviet Union, the movement to free Soviet Jews began with the our struggle to recognize the Holocaust. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. So tell us about a moment in your life when you felt a confirmation of God's existence. I remember the moment when I just felt, not just understood, it wasn't necessarily something that was handed to me, but I felt the presence of something, the universe. In Judaism, they're not allowed to say the word God, which I just did. (laughs) But I was at the University of Michigan as a student years ago, 35 years ago, and there was a program, New England Literature Program. We, about 40 students, went from Michigan to New Hampshire, and we stayed in this very rustic setting, unheated barracks from April to May, and read Emily Dickinson and David Thoreau and Robert Frost. But the beauty of that setting, and it was really cold when we arrived, still snow on the ground, and we were in our sleeping bags. And then you just see this nature awakening and the flowering and the leaves coming. And on the weekends, after reading all this beautiful poetry, we would go up in the White Mountains. And at night or at six o'clock in the morning, we would go canoeing and you see the light reflected. And I don't think it's possible to be in that kind of tremendous beauty and not be in awe and realize just how little we are and how much we are creations of something else. We've talked to people on this show who are, we'll say they're spiritual, but not necessarily religious. And other people will actually say they're religious, but not necessarily spiritual, meaning that religion gives them an identity and a tradition and a structure and a community. Where do you think you fall or where do you feel like you would fall on that spectrum in your own practice and It's a progression, I think. I don't think religious feeling or spiritual feeling is static and it changes with years. I think as a young child, it's one thing, but I'm a practicing Jew. I raised my children in Judaism. My mother is a observant Jew. Because in my family, the Jewish religion, the tradition was interrupted by force for a generation, for 50 years. I made it a mission when my two children were born that the religious practice, the Judaism would be a cornerstone of my upbringing. And they both had B'nai Mitzvah ceremonies in which they both read from Torah, Old Testament, and they led the service, they wrote and gave a talk on the commentary and the ideas, and they are beautiful talks, very thoughtful. So it will continue to be my practice. And I think my grandparents, my grandmother and my grandfather's paintings are very much what hold me to Judaism. I know this will sound very obvious especially to my audience. But one of my questions is, and very sincerely, what are the differences in practicing Judaism in the USSR versus here in the USA? I think for me, when I came to the United States, I was surprised that there is such a strong borders between different religious practices that many of people I knew who were Jews would be reluctant to go and walk into a church. I think that in the Soviet Union, at least in my family, there was a fluidity, there was a unity between Christian practice and Judaic practice. I think most of it is very positive. This is such a privilege. Coming from the Soviet Union, I never take for granted the fact that I can go to a synagogue and I can have a choice of the synagogue and different forms of practices. I can walk into any building and be free to learn to study, to worship. And I and I can go to a church and feel welcomed. And I remember in Michigan, our dear friends had introduced me to an ecumenical community. And much of it was very unusual to me. People were very expressive and dancing and moving and praying in tongues. And it took a while to relate to it. But I think this was, I never could stop Admiring the many forms of expression that are here. The Mormon faith, I live near a beautiful Mormon temple here, near Belmont. It's just such a richness, plurality. I, I took classes in Buddhism in our community, and it's, it's wonderful. You mentioned before about dedicating yourself as a mother 
to raising your children within Judaism. So what was that like as someone who didn't have a background in Jewish practice? With children, we find a completely new understanding of ourselves and learning with them. When my kids were two years old, I sent them to the Jewish preschool, and we had continued with the studies all their uh, lives. And with them, thanks to them and thanks to that, I was learning with them because when they were practicing for their name it's what they had to learn and read the texts and who will be sitting and practicing with them but me so my, they had to study musical tropes and they have to study hebrew and so i had to teach myself one step ahead of them and just sit and practice and eventually we were learning together but i think now that my older one is in college and my younger is in high school i think it is paramount to them it's something that especially my older one i think religion does give strength and the anchor in a very difficult world. I was giving a talk several months ago at the university for a group of students, juniors and seniors, and I was showing my grandfather's paintings and I asked about if anybody knew the meaning of Jacob's letter. And to my surprise, I don't think anyone knew. And then, so I asked if anyone went to Christian Sunday school and it didn't look like, as far as I understood in that particular class, it's just one instance, that religion, Christian religion or Judaism in that group was something that was fundamental to them. And I think that we need religion now more than ever, because I think the social media creates this worship, the cult of the image, physical appearance. It's a man-centered, women-centered, human-centered cult in which the physical appearance comes before everything else. And I think kids are struggling, children are struggling. I think it would help them the understanding that what they do in the larger universe is more important and how their picture, how their photo is presented. I have taught literature classes and film classes at the university level and also the high school level. And there came a point when anything written in English literature probably before the 20th century is so founded on the Bible <laughs> that I ended up giving like these mini Sunday school lessons. And it made me a little sad because just for completely non-religious reasons, there's a whole literature and art that will be lost. We won't be able to comprehend it if we can't understand the texts which inspired the artists themselves. You we know. have to change it. We have to give a good rap. To, to religion. <laughs> yeah. In the 1950s, a British historian, Arnold Toynbee, wrote an essay in which he separates the traditional religions, Christianity, Hinduism, in contrast to the man-centered religions, Nazism, fascism, communism, and extreme forms of nationalism. The pseudo-religions, as he calls them, are centered on the belief that the human being is the center of the world. And those are toxic and can lead to our self-destruction. And I think that understanding that all of the world's religious practices, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all share this common mission of finding guidance, ethics, understanding that there is a high other presence of the other that organizes our life, that we are not alone. So that was Elena Limbersky, who's the author of Like a Drop of Ink in a Downpour, talking about her grandfather's art, her immigration to the U.S., and the development of her Jewish identity. And one of the things that really struck me about her interview is the discussion of how her grandmother handled the Holocaust. Right. We've had a couple of interviews this season about the Holocaust um, and about the importance of education uh, in regards to the Holocaust. And this was just a really interesting divergent opinion about that, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, that phrasing that Elena had about her grandmother wanting them to have a cloudless sky, uh, that touched me. It's like she thought, I there's no way I can get rid of this pain, but I'm not going to pass it on somehow. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, that's a lot to hold in on yourself so that your granddaughter can just grow up without feeling this burden. She also talks about how, obviously, the tragedy didn't just stop with her grandmother. It lives on in the generations. And so really talking about that and talking about 
Their victimhood and the pain of that, that's really an important aspect of their healing that I think she wants to be a part of and facilitate. I mentioned before the images that stuck in my mind. Here are a few of them. One is a woman on the roof of the apartment building holding a bucket of sand so when the bomb drops and starts the building on fire, she can put it out. Right. And I mean, the practicalities of when you are in a horrible situation and just the things you have to do. They talk about the beautiful Greek Orthodox icons that were pulled down and were either trashed or put in vaults or, she mentions, used as backboards for basketball hoops. Right. Just to really denigrate. And, And I think all the effort to get rid of something that people believed in or helped their belief kind of shows the power those icons and that art had. Yeah. And and she is so open to, I mean, she's Jewish, but here she's, she's talking about the sadness of these Christian icons. Right. And then she comes here to the States, and of all places, the land of the brave and the home of the free, she's surprised that we are all hesitant to go to other denominations mm. for some reason, which she never felt in the USSR. Yeah. Yeah, such an eye-opening um, interview. So we want you to go see her art. We have a link in our show notes. We have a link on our website. And we also have a YouTube video that you can see that has some of her grandfather's art in it. Heather, you asked what Jewish identity she is going to pass on to her children yeah. in this new situation. Yeah. And she basically gives them all these resources, right? She makes sure they have access to day schools and the bar mitzvah and the Torah. And she's learning it. I love how she says that. I had to learn it one step ahead of them, yes. right? So I could teach them as well. But it's what taught her all those basics of her tradition. Yeah, the secret of parenthood stays just barely one step <laughs> ahead. Thanks to Harun Mogo and Elena Lembersky for their generous sharing of their experience and their faith. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinich. Our post-sound designer is Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. We're on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.